this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Ever since I was a young man, when I first gave my life to the Lord, uh, I... I consistently uh, found myself at church. Whenever the doors were open, whether that was a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, there was something about being together with God's people that just really arrested me as a young man. And uh, I'm so grateful for the community that I wound up in and uh, just, just the fact that there was a community that was available to me. Um, and I've always had a hard time understanding Christians believers that don't value this community in that same way. And I don't need to, I don't, I don't need to be uh, super intense about this this morning um, in the sense that, you know, I don't need to kind of pull out statistics or anything, but the vast majority of people in our culture do not value the gathering of a Sunday morning church service. It used to be something that was ingrained into society uh, was just kind of the, the cultural expectation was that Sunday morning, you get up, you get the family together, and you go to church. And friends, that, that has, and I don't want to say sadly, that has really dissipated over the last number of the years uh, in sense of uh, exposing nominal Christians, those that are Christian in name only. But there are still plenty of people that will check the box of Christianity on a census and, you know, say that, you know what, I believe in Jesus. I have friends like this that do not value the gathering of the saints on a Sunday morning, like what we're doing here. And uh, this has grieved me, if I'm being honest. It's something that has really become a, a thing of increasing concern for me as a pastor, as I've noticed trends, as I've looked at things happen throughout the years, um, even just with friends here in Pagosa, in this community, um, and I really want to talk about that. Is that okay? Like, can we, can we look at the biblical relevance of the church and what we do here on Sunday mornings? Because I think it's important for you and for me to understand why we're doing this. Are we showing up to Sunday morning because it's a tradition? Are we showing it up because, you know, it's the pastorals, it's the pastor's expectation of me? Are we doing it because there's some kind of uh, duty outlined in scripture that we should be here? I want to ask these questions. I want to look at them through the lens of Scripture because I want to make sure what we're doing here is, one, first and foremost, pleasing to the Lord, right? That, otherwise, we're wasting our time. <laughs> and uh, I want to be very honest with you. I, I believe if we had a clear understanding of his word, uh, Sunday morning would take a higher priority in the lives of most believers than it currently does. And now, this isn't, this isn't me kind of... Uh, coming from a place of uh, discouragement, I want, to, I want you guys to know that. I'm not here preaching this message because, you know, there's a bunch of empty seats in the room this morning. I'm preaching this message because uh, I was in Africa uh, last month, and I spent a good deal of time ministering to unreached people and seeing people that had never before heard the name of Jesus uh, meet Jesus, get saved, get healed, get delivered, all at the same time, and then immediately saw them want to gather as God's people. 
They were asking, well, now what? What do we do? And we saw four kind of indigenous churches raise up while we were there, meeting under uh, thorn bushes and acacia trees, outside of mud huts, in little tin shacks, anywhere where they could gather. We saw people come for hours that had just heard the message of Jesus because they wanted a shared experience about what God had done in their life. And they wanted to continue on in this journey of following Jesus. And it was something moving. It was something powerful. One man who had just gotten saved, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, he had just met Jesus for the first time, had no semblance or concept of the Bible, not any idea of, uh, of what, uh, what would be expected of him in terms of serving Jesus, says, I will give my land I will give my land if we can build a church here so people can come and hear this message of Jesus. I mean, this, it's awesome. And I, I, see, I, I saw such a tremendous response of people wanting to gather and encourage one another and edify one another and continue on in this journey of the Lord. It blew me away. And I, it, was, it was hard for me to connect what I saw there and really see, see the same kind of thing taking place here, uh, here back at home, where I don't sense the same, I, and I didn't even sense the same urgency in myself to gather together with God's people, and the Lord began to convict me. And I really, I really want us to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is sharing here, not just some kind of man's opinion, not some kind of, oh, oh, Pastor Nate's on some kind of tirade, and he's just disappointed that we didn't come to church last week. That's not what this is about. There are people in other nations that are risking their lives, even losing them, to gather together for the privilege of coming together and meeting in homes and meeting in secret so that they can fulfill what Jesus instructs us to do in his word. They're taking this thing very seriously. And I want us to not neglect the fact that what we have here in the United States of America, what we have here in Pagosa Springs, what we have here at Open Door Church is a privilege. And we should take advantage of the opportunity to gather together as the people of God. And it should be something that is celebrated. It should be something that is encouraging for one another. It, is, it should be, because I know it is for me, it should be a real pinnacle or a highlight of our week where we get to gather together with the people of God. I don't want you to see it as a burden. I don't want you to see it as something that is just on a to-do list. I want you to understand the rich blessedness that exists with coming together as God's people. And I want to see it from the lens of Scripture. Think of it as this way. Um, or, or, or to put it in maybe a different terms, I, I feel like too many people feel like church attendance and merely showing up is some kind of burden upon them. When in reality, it, is, it exists for us. It exists as a blessing to us for God. And it's really cool. It's really exciting. We're going to look at scripture uh, to kind of back up these statements. Um, and I, I should actually look at my notes because uh, there is, again, I want to reiterate, this isn't coming from a place of discouragement or even frustration. It is coming from a place of legitimate concern, though, because I do believe that the value of what we do here in, a, in the context of a gathering as a church to worship the Lord uh, doesn't have as necessarily high place of priority as it ought to 
in the life of the believer. And so this is something I've fought for in terms of my family for them to understand. I want my boys to know. I, I, Kelly knows that the reason why we come to church and we, we spend so much time uh, doing church things is not because I'm the pastor and it's the expectation of me. It's not because the board would fire me if I didn't show up to prayer. You know, it's not that it's not that there'd be like concern, you know, if Nate didn't actually partake in deeper project, which I know for like the last month I was gone. <laughs> but the reality of is the reality of it is this is that we go to church as a family because we're Christians and we love Jesus. We come to prayer because we love Jesus. It's not because dad's the pastor. And I, I want I want that to be reiterated and it's not just out of a place of obligation. It comes out of a legitimate place of joy that I want to be a part of what God's doing and the opportunity that is made available for us to gather is one that I want to seize hold of. And so um, I say that I really want my sons to know. I want my family to know that the reason why we're so active in church and so active in ministry isn't because, you know, I'm the venerable Reverend Nathaniel James Ward that gets his mail. You know, right? I, I've never had venerable, but uh, we joked about that word in Deeper Project this Tuesday. But I do get mail to reverend, and it's a little weird. Um, <laughs> but it, the, the fact that I have a title or a card in my wallet that says I'm a pastor isn't the reason why we do what we do. There is a legitimate joy and a blessing that comes from being engaged in the construct of a local church. And so we're going to talk about some things, and I'm excited. I, I was joking with Tina, and I was telling Adam this this morning. Um, on Sunday mornings, I like to refine my message and look through what I'm going to talk about, make sure that it really makes sense, and that people are going to be able to track with me if I deliver it in the way that it's written. And almost every week, I severely condense and cut things out of what I wanted to share. In fact, uh, so this week... Uh, I actually am only sharing the first part of my message because I realized very quickly that there was just too much to cover and uh, we're going to kind of break this up in a, in a few weeks of teaching, but we're going to talk about why we gather, why we gather. And so this is my way of being all fancy and trending and having a sermon series. Um, but today we're going to specifically tackle the topic of what is the church. You see, there's this saying and I understand its sentiment. I really believe that, in essence, it's got, it's got good intention. But I actually believe I've seen it do a little more harm than good um, because it's incomplete. It's lacking some aspect of truth. How many of you guys ever said this? Maybe you've heard it. I've said it. I've heard it. I've passed it around. That you don't go to church. You are the church. Right? That's true. Like, I'm saying that that's true. That's okay. You guys are giving me blank stares. You guys have heard this, right? This isn't like revelatory. This isn't the first time you've ever heard that. You're like, oh my goodness, my pastor is so cool. I'm going to quote him on Facebook now. He said, we don't go to church. We are the church. This is like groundbreaking. Um, no, we've heard that, right? I, I, I do have some issue with it though because I feel like it pits um, unnecessarily the notion that going to church and being the church are at odds with one another. And so I guess the best way to say this is, um, I, I put that, I wrote it down. It unnecessarily puts being the church and going to church at odds with one another. And I, I think that's, 
it's doing a disservice in the fact that it discredits actually going to church. It almost paints going to church in a negative light that there's no importance on actually going to church because you're called to be the church. Do you understand what I'm saying there? And I'm going to talk about this because I, I believe this, and I put this in bold in my notes. So if you want to write this down, you can, and I'm going to back up this statement. But I believe that the simple, the simple reality is that it is impossible to be the church without going to church. Now, now hear me, before you start dismantling that statement and you have all your disagreements come up and I get angry emails, um, I want you to know I'm not simply talking about showing up to a Sunday morning 10 a.m. service. I really don't place a lot of stock in, in just your attendance. You know, I think I like what Keith Green would say. Uh, he, he actually says it in one of his songs. But he talks, about, um, he talks about how going to church doesn't make you any more of a Christian than going to McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. He's a funny guy. I like him. Um, Keith Green is like one of my heroes. And that, that's true. And so hear me out. I'm not here trying to give some kind of stamp of approval that, you know, your church attendance is the utmost of utmost importance to the Lord and that that in and of itself is like a, a definitive sign of your salvation. You'd have a hard time convincing me that the thief on the cross didn't actually go into paradise because he never stepped foot in a church. So, so hear me when I say these statements. Hear me when I talk about this. But I do believe that the church is close to the Lord's heart. And I do believe that the reality of it is that it is impossible to be the church that God's called us to be without actually going to church. I know that's revelatory. I know that's crazy. I know that that's so elementary and so simple. But there is an attack. There is an affront. I guarantee you every single one of us in this room probably can count multiple people that we know that have some kind of offense or bitterness to the church. Or worse yet, the church hurt them right? That's reality. That, that's something that's real. And people may have a long list of legitimate and illegitimate reasons on why they don't come to church, but they still say they love Jesus. But can I tell you, in light of the scripture and in light of what Jesus calls us to, I can find no excuse that stands. I'm not saying that people haven't been hurt. I'm not saying that the church is perfect. And I'm certainly not saying our expression of it in the West on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. with five fast songs and two slow songs. and well, That's a lot of songs. We, I don't think we've ever done that many. Um, and making sure we pass offering plates and we have a quirky video and the pastor makes a stupid joke. Like that is, not the, that is not the epitome of what I'm talking about when I say uh, coming to church and going to church. But I do believe there is an aspect of our gathering and what we do even here in context on a Sunday morning that is pivotal to the life of the believer if we're going to be pleasing to Jesus in the long run. And so we're going to look at a lot of scripture. We're going to talk about a lot of this over the next, uh, the way that I have it broken down is three weeks. Um, so it may be longer than that. I apologize. Um, the Lord might speak to me and we might do it all in one week and we'll be here till 4 p.m. today. But I, I sense that I have a good stopping point, if that's okay. And so what we're going to look at over the next uh, kind of series of teaching is this. We're going to look at what exactly is the church. I think that that's a great place to start in defining what the church is. Not necessarily what it does, but what is the church. 
And then we're going to move on in asking the question of why does the church exist? What is its purpose? What is its primary role? And then I do have a, a good list of scriptures and a good argument of why attending church is important. And so that, that was where this all started. Uh, I really wanted to answer that question of why actually attending a local church on a consistent basis is important. Um, but uh, I felt like there were a couple questions to answer before we even got there. And so that's, that's kind of uh, the direction that we're headed, if you will. So we can start, guys, by looking at Matthew chapter 16. And so I figured the best way to start teaching on the church, on the reason for its existence, on its role, on why it's important, why it should matter, on whether or not do you go on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or you plug into a deeper project on Tuesday. Can I give you a quick plug? Uh, I'm going to make some really good food on Tuesday. I'm cooking and I'm bragging because I'm really excited for the meal that we're going to prepare. Um, I tell you what it is, but because you probably don't know what it is, you'd be like, I don't know if that's good. I can universally say that every time I've made this meal, there haven't been leftovers. <laughs> Boom. That was a little braggadocious, wasn't it? Braggadocious, whatever. A little bit of pride there. Jesus, convict me. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just trying, I'm just trying to say, uh, I'm really excited about a Deeper Project because uh, these guys all made the decision to bring food back when I was in Africa. They're like, Pastor Nate's not here. Let's just usurp him and say, let's bring food. And I've been pushing to bring food back the entirety of its absence. And so I'm glad that we're doing that. We should talk about Jesus in the scripture. In Matthew 16, uh, verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Friends, this is the first kind of usage of the word church in all of the New Testament, and therefore all of the Bible. And it's used by Jesus here, and he instructs on how he's going to build and initiate and start his church. And he tells Peter that it's on this rock that I will build my church. Now, Roman Catholicism would interpret this passage of scripture to say that Peter is the rock upon which God builds the church, and therefore making him the first pope. And all of this stuff, it kind of uh, goes down. There's been controversy surrounding exactly what Jesus means here. You'll get, uh, you'll get the, the language talking about Petros and Petra and talking about which rock Jesus builds his church on. Um, I think in light of context, also reading the writings of Peter, which we're going to look at here eventually, um, I think uh, he didn't think he was the rock that Jesus was going to build the church on. And I think it would be uh, poor exegesis if we read it that way as well. 
I think uh, very clearly and very plainly, um, it's very evident um, that the rock Jesus refer is referring to here is himself and the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You need to understand that that's the foundation of what makes the church the church is profession of faith in Jesus, that he is the son of God, that we believe he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. When we have faith in Jesus and we believe him and take him at his word and we profess faith in him, that is the foundation upon which Jesus will build his church. And so I very clearly, uh, I very clearly, <laughs> um, I have just a few things that I really wanted to bring out of this text, a number of points. I guess I have four points here. Um, three points, I guess, uh, is how I wrote them down. Um, but the first one is actually like point 1A and point 1B. It's actually a two for one. So we'll go with four, however you want to write them down. Um, but I drew out of this text in, in helping define what the church is uh, we look at this text and we see first that Jesus is going to build his church, first and foremost. And so 1A, or just point one, if you, it would have made more sense for me to just do them in numbers, is that it's his church. You need to understand this, that Jesus describes the church that he is going to build as my church. He tells Peter, I am going to build my church upon this rock, right? It's his church. He takes ownership. He takes possession of it. His church is precious to him, and if it's precious to Jesus, therefore, as his followers, it must be precious to us. I'm not talking about open-door church. I'm not talking about, you know, our articles of, like, enlistment or whatever. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, incorporation or our bylaws or who we are as an organization or even the assemblies of God. I'm talking about the church universal, the collective body of believers worldwide that will one day be presented to God as a bride without spot or blemish. We sang that song today, getting ready, right? We're talking about a marriage supper of the land. One day the people of God are going to be be presented to Jesus as his bride. And he is deserving of a bride without spot or blemish. One that has been perfected by his work. Ephesians 5.25 tells us this, that husbands were to love our wives. Woo, amen. Preach it. That's good. Uh, husbands, listen to that. Just as Christ loves the church. It says, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is a beautiful promise that we have in scripture that God is going to do a sanctifying work amongst his people. And it may be easy for us to have all kinds of criticism against the, the church body, right? We can look at all the things that are wrong with the church kind of universal. You know, the media has a long list of everything that's, that's wrong, right? Uh, churches abuse power. They want your money. They want all of this stuff. You can insert your grievance with the church here. The reality is Jesus gave himself for his church. He, he willingly gave himself for his bride, for this collective body of believers. And notice here, it doesn't just say people. 
He uses the word church. He gave himself for mankind collected under his name (laughs) that he loves and that he desires. And he's going to do a work, no matter how broken or how discouraging its current state might be, he is going to do a work uh, that would... uh, that would make what's broken and turn it into a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, a holy church that will be presented to Jesus as a bride. That should be encouraging because I can, I can, be, I can be very transparent now. There are days when I think about just the state of, ch- of the church, universal, not even just our church, and it's easy to grow discouraged. It's easy for me to look and see uh, what other denominations are arguing about and the things that are being allowed within pulpits and, and within, within, within whole churches and the things that are celebrated that I believe that break the heart of God. But I, I think often of the fact that Jesus was always found within his father's house, right? <laughs> It's like this continual theme. Even from when he was a young boy, he, he, he tells his parents, well, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And I believe that it's very hard to keep Jesus out of his father's house. And as long as we make room for him, I believe that he is still in the business of upturning tables. I still believe that he's in the business of wanting to connect with his people. And I don't think there's enough legislation that can keep him out of the authentic moving of the church. If we give room for Jesus to be present, his promise is that he would build his church. And that's the second point, that he would build his church, right? It's uh, that he would bring his people together. It's not, up, it's not left up to luck. It's not relegated to some kind of uh, like a special gimmickry. Um, yeah, gimmickry, that's a word, right? Or talent. I, I, think, I think it's a word. I don't know. Um, it's not just related on, you know, making sure that we have the perfect agenda and I say the right words and we have the right lines and every song we sing is on key. That isn't how Jesus says we're going to build the church. He actually promises us that he would build his church. And that's a huge relief for me as a pastor. Can I tell you that? (laughs) That's super encouraging to know that it's not my just explicit mandate that I build his church to present it for him. But it actually is a promise of scripture. It's a promise that Jesus makes that he would build his house, that he would build his church. It's what Psalm 127 verse 1 uh, tells us is that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't work to be done. That doesn't mean that there isn't labor to be had. That doesn't mean that there isn't a harvest to reap. Obviously, all of those things are true, but ultimately, I can trust in the fact that if I'm faithful to Jesus to do what he's asked me to do, that he will see the results. Amen? That should be encouraging to you that he will build his church. The second thing I noticed here, or third, however you're going to, my notes are weird, uh, but is that it's on a firm foundation, right? It's not built on mere tradition of man. It's not built on the social constructs of, uh, of us making sure that we show up on our day off, which happens to be Sunday. Uh, it's not built on religious piety. It's not built on uh, anything other than Jesus, the Son of God. And that's a foundation that we know will endure. 
It's endured through generations. It's endured through war. It's endured through hardship. And it will endure uh, forever. <laughs> and that is something that we can take, uh, take comfort in, is the fact that it's not shaken by COVID-19. It's not shaken by a political election. It is not shaken by what's going on in our nation. But we have a foundation of a God who is unshakable. <laughs> and it will endure. In fact, the last promise is that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I love this because I've heard it almost quoted in a sense that if we pray this prayer and then we go on and we talk about binding and loosing and these things that we can kind of name it and claim it, that there won't be hardship for the people of God. If you've listened to any of my messaging ever, uh, you know that I think that's bogus and it's not something that you should even remotely entertain. But uh, we understand that there will be obstacles. This, does not, this verse does not promise us that the enemy um, won't be present, but it does promise us that he won't be victorious. I love John Trapp. He's this Puritan kind of commentator. Uh, he said this, that the gates of Hades was all the power and policy of hell combined. I love that. Just thinking all the power and policy of hell combined is not going to prevail against the church. Whatever Satan has in his arsenal, whatever kind of gimmickry he has, <laughs> ooh, I use that word again, uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> he may discourage, he may frustrate, he may attempt with whatever he has to see the church fall. He'll release scandal, he'll put out podcasts, these things will exist, and we will try to discredit the working of the church, but it will not take root. It will not last. It will not be victorious because we have a church that's built on a firm foundation who is the, G who is the Jesus, <laughs> who is Jesus, the Son of God. <laughs> Amen? Amen? I love this passage of Scripture. We could talk about it more. We could bind and loosen stuff if we wanted to. It's great. But the, the simple thing here that I want to take out is that he will build his church, that it's his church that it's precious to him. And friends, I, I want to caution you here. You need to be careful about the language that you use against his church. I believe that you cannot love Jesus and not love his church. Because that would be like saying, you know, I love you, Nate, but I hate your wife. <laughs> right? Like, like, like real. Like, you're great, Nate. I love hanging out with you, but your wife, man, I hate her. That's not going to fly. I have some people that I'm like, man, I kind of like hanging out with you, but your spouse really drives me up the wall. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, you can't genuinely love somebody if, uh, because, right, my, my wife and I, God considers us one flesh. Uh, if you have issue with my wife, which that would make no sense. You probably love my wife and really have issue with me. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Everybody, my whole staff is like, yeah, that's about right. Okay. Thanks for being transparent there. But we understand like that dynamic doesn't work, right? And, and for these people that simply say, you know what, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm kind of isolated. I love Jesus. And I kind of just float around and I listen to some teaching here and do this there. But I really just can't commit to the local church. I can't be really a part of what God's doing there. It's like saying, God, I love you, but I don't trust you. 
Like, I don't trust your plan for redemption of humanity. God, I love you, but man, I really don't like the people you associate with and the people that you love. And so it's this discredit to God's face. It hurts God's heart when you say that. Now, I'm not saying that we just give everybody a pass. Now, hear me out. I'm not just saying that everybody like, uh, gets like an abuse of power and they just get like a high five. It's like, oh, God loves you, blah, blah, blah. Like, and we put a sample approval on it. But we have to be cautious with the attitude in which we approach God's people, which we approach the church. Um, does that make sense? Because God gave his life for it and he wants to do a redeeming work in it because it is one day going to be presented to him without spot or blemish. Now, that, now hear me, and we've talked about this. This is going to make sense as we get through all of this teaching. Not everybody that sits in a church pew is a part of the church of God. We understand that, right? Keith Green, like, you guys got that reference? You're not hamburgers just because you go to McDonald's. Okay, good. Okay. I've got this cool definition because I said that this was the first time that we encounter the word church in Scripture, right? It's this Greek word, ekklesia, if you want to throw that up there. And the, the very, like, basic definition of this Greek word, the, the, the first time that it's used here in Matthew, all throughout the rest of the New Testament is ekklesia, and it means a called-out assembly of people. This, this to mean assembly. Adam wrote that. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have looked up there. I should have looked at my notes where it's, uh, now I'm distracted. It's a called out distinct assembly of people. Now, I think there's a few things that we can kind of bring out of this definition, um, looking at this, that really help. Oh, okay. Mia, woo, she gave me a thumbs up. Now I'm so distracted. Uh, <laughs> now, I think you guys have tracked, the, tracked with me thus far, and we know this, and so forgive me if I'm giving repetitive information or if it's somewhat elementary, but it is important that we have this foundation if we're going to have a healthy understanding of what we do here and why we do it. And I believe if we have a firm biblical backing for being together here on a Sunday morning, it will genuinely encourage us to see what God's doing here grow. Because if, we, if we're not convicted that our time spent here is important, we're certainly not going to spend our time uh, trying to grow his mission in context of the local church, right? But if this is worthwhile, if it's worth everything, if it's worth giving our life for like it is for a lot of people, um, God will bless this. I believe that immensely. Anyway, but we look at the purpose of the church. We look at a few points here that we draw out of this definition. First and foremost, it's not a group of people. It's not a, it's not a group of people. First and foremost, the ecclesia of God, the church of God, is a group of people, not a building. We understand that. I made those statements before. Um, it's, the, it's a group of people. It's not a building. It's the church universal made up of believers in Jesus who profess him as the Son of God, right? As the Christ, as the Messiah, who place their trust in making him Savior and Lord of their lives. It's important that we understand that. And then local churches like this one here, and we've got great churches in our community that we absolutely love that meet throughout the week. Uh, 
we just happen to meet in a building called a church. Get where that's a little confusing. English is weird like that too. Um, <laughs> but we understand that primarily when I'm talking about the church, we're talking about the ecclesia of God. We're talking about the family of God, the bride of Christ, not just one denomination, not just like one specific sect of Christianity, not just open door church by any means. We're talking about the church of God. And we're going to get into why worshiping and gathering together in a local church like this is important. But for the sake of what we're talking about today, we're talking about the church universal. We're talking about the church everywhere of people who profess faith in Jesus, who are invited into a family together um, by sharing a, a shared reality that Jesus is the Lord of their life, okay? Um, and so that's, that's one thing out of this definition that we see. It's an assembly of people. So it's actually a gathering together of people, right? It's not just individuals. It's not just kind of, uh, it's not just uh, people here and there, but there is actually this idea of the church assembling. Throughout scripture, we see it, and there was actually structure to it. We're going to look at it. It's not just like, hey, I believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Let's go get coffee. Um, there's more to it than that, and we're going to look at it. But there is an assembly of people that have the shared reality that Jesus is Lord of their life, but it's a called out people. It's a people that are distinctly different, is the word that Jesus uses here, ecclesia, to define his church. And uh, I believe this, to be a part of the church of God, to be a part of the family of God, is to be called out, is to be distinctly different, is to look differently than the rest of the world. We've talked about this. We looked at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount for like six months or longer, where we, we kind of looked at his teaching on what it was like to live radically different in the midst of a culture that hated him and that still hates God. And we looked at it, we looked at the outline of basic Christian living that God defines for his church, and that is that we would live differently than the world around us. First Peter 2.9 tells us, but we're not like that. We're not like a godless people. Um, it tells us that we are a chosen people. We are, are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he, call, he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. I realize I didn't have all those. Oh, maybe you guys pulled them up? Or, or not, sorry. Maybe, yeah, I'm not tracking. Um, <laughs> but uh, this passage of scripture here, gives us this very clear understanding that God called us out of darkness into a marvelous light. He called us out of a lifestyle and gave us a new set of standards to live by. He gave us a new set of rules that would glorify him. He gave us instruction on how to please him. Um, and it's very important that we do not continue living the way that we lived before, that we as God's people live distinct 
in light of what he's done for us. And so I believe to be the ecclesia, to be the church, that we need to be defined by living differently than the rest of the world. There is this understanding that God has done something miraculous and marvelous for us, and we need to live like that's actually happened. I am so sick and frustrated of having conversations with people that have professed faith in Jesus Christ that live no differently than the rest of the world. It's a blasphemous act to continue living in sin, to continue living like Jesus didn't actually do anything for you. We want to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We want to talk about an unforgivable sin. You can have all kinds of different interpretations of what that actually is. But if the Holy Spirit has really regenerated your life, you will look differently. It's a blasphemous act to say that God has changed your life, has done something, and you can profess him as both Savior and Lord and continue living in the same way. We can read Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to. That's actually the next part of my sermon here that is kind of where I broke off, but you should read Hebrews chapter 10 and it will put the fear of God in you. (laughs) I don't want you just to hear this from a pastor. You guys should read that. That's your homework because we're going to talk about it next. Um, Anyway, there has to be something distinctly different about God's people. And that is where the majority of frustration comes from non-believers is that they've heard about a God that makes people new. They've heard about a God that makes people different. And then our churches are full of people that have never actually have never actually demonstrated the power of that encounter. But I believe he wants to do a work by his Holy Spirit. I believe that he wants to bring uh, great restoration to his church that it would be marked and displayed by his working, by the moving of his Holy Spirit, not just kind of philosophical ideas, but I'm talking about lives transformed by the gospel. Because you can argue with somebody about the existence of God day and night, but you can't argue against the evidence of a changed life. For the church to operate in the way that Jesus intended it, there has to be evidence of his working. That's why he called it a called out, distinctively different people. That assembles. Hmm. We're going to talk about that too. Um, Why am I preaching this? Why am I even going down this road? Why am I making a big deal about talking about the church and its role? And obviously my heart as a pastor, uh, wanting people to be here and be a part of what we're doing. Um, Can I I be honest? It does grow discouraging um, seeing empty seats all the time. But that's not the reason why I'm preaching this. I'm not here because, you know, I'm so disappointed that so-and-so is not here. That, that really isn't the motivation for this message. I'm preaching this message because I've seen the effects of being engaged with the local church and seeing how it's transformed lives. When people actually get rooted and get committed to what God's doing in a place, I've seen that transformation happen over and over and over again, and I've seen the inverse of it happen as well. When I was a young man and I first started following Jesus, I was part of this just fiery youth ministry called 1063. It was really cool. We would see teenagers pack out the house uh, on Wednesday nights all the time. Like we had upwards of like 400 kids. That was bigger than our church, I think, at the time. Like it was awesome. 
We saw God do mighty things. We saw mighty movings and demonstrations of the Spirit's power. I mean, we would see demons cast out. We would see kids get saved every single week. And it was awesome. Kids wanted to come. There were also the guys that were there to deal drugs and pick up girls. But it was cool. We saw God do some really neat things during those formative years of me first following Jesus. But I had the privilege of, just a few weeks ago, I went and met with my pastor. Uh, he's a senior pastor now, of the same church, actually. He was a youth pastor uh, when I was there. He actually was the youth pastor here so many years ago. And we just started having this conversation about different people that we, were, that we knew and that we were engaged with and kids that had come through the ministry and asking where they were. We spent like four hours in his office uh, you know, his son kept calling and saying, when are you coming home, dad? And, and we were just connecting over just the history and the years of ministry. And one of the things that we noticed was there is a large amount of teenagers from that particular season that are active in full-time ministry today. A huge percentage of us, of the names that came up, were missionaries, were pastors, were working at local churches. And it was really encouraging. But one of the things that we noted about of 12 people that we kind of named off, um, was that we were all consistently tied in with the local church on a Sunday morning with what God was doing in the local body of Christ, not just youth ministry on a Wednesday night. And I say this because I've experienced firsthand the benefit of being engaged in a church family beyond just showing up and going to a service. And we looked back and we looked at, I mean, these guys are like crushing it in ministry. They're following Jesus with fiery passion. But there were hundreds of other kids that we don't even remember their names that kind of came through, went through a door. Maybe they heard a message and hopefully they got plugged in somewhere. And I pray that something happened. But we, we had equal amount of stories, actually probably way more stories that we shared about people that weren't doing good, that weren't following the Lord, that weren't consistent in their walk with God. And they didn't prioritize the local church. And so I'm saying this, I'm sounding this off as a warning because I don't believe that you can effectively walk out your faith. I don't believe that you can be right with God and actually love Jesus and sustain Christian living outside of the local church. And you, you might have argument against that. You might blah, blah, blah. Um, I can tell you, um, I think you're wrong. I think Jesus thinks you're wrong. And I think Paul would very explicitly tell you that you're wrong. The writer of Hebrews would tell you you're very, very wrong. And so as much as, as, much as that might be like, oh, that hurts my flesh. Um, welcome to the club. Um, because uh, it's true. I say this. God designed us... Uh, as relational beings. He designed us to walk out our faith in the construct of community. We need one another. And, I, and I'm gonna, we're going to break this down over the next couple of weeks. Where we're going to go in depth with scripture here. But I want you to think about the majority of the New Testament, the New Testament, the New Testament epistles, Paul's writings, right? That he wrote to the local church, to local church congregations in different areas of the world at that time, he wrote things. But how often was the language one another used? And we, we could look at all of these, but uh, all throughout the New Testament, we would get the command to love one another, 
to welcome one another, to care for one another. I'm pulling these from Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, even James and, and 1 Peter. We, but we look at this. It says, agree with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Teach one another. Do good to one another. Confess to one another. Show hospitality to one another. How can you do one another by yourself? You can't. It doesn't work that way. From the onset of God establishing his church, from where he first mentions it here to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where we see uh, church history burst into full flame, it was always in the idea of doing it together in community. I want even, even think all the way back to the garden, guys. Think back to when God created the heavens and the earth. He created the mountains and the trees. He created the animals. I mean, he, he did it all, right? And then he creates man. At the end of each day, he says, it is good, right? And at the end of the seventh day, he rested. Perfection, is it not? Right? Anybody want to argue with me? It's perfect. Wish somebody would argue with me. Because it goes on, and this is one of those confusing things uh, Jesus said something, or God, Jesus, how, three in one. I'll make that point in a second. Um, <laughs> actually says something's not good. Do you know what he said wasn't good? If, in Genesis 2, 18, it says that uh, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, don't get weird with me on this. I know he made him a wife and he made Eve. But there was something in the human construct that God created, and he said that it's not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to make him a helper. Because humankind was designed to have relationship. Humankind was designed to have fellowship with one another. There was this... There was this need in man to have relational uh, relation, relationship with other people. <laughs> so God created people, <laughs> created another person for that to happen. We even see this to some extent within the mystery of the Trinity, right? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship with one another. We see that God desires and delights that we might have fellowship with each other. Now, that doesn't make it easy, right? Anybody have a family? <laughs> it's hard, right? Because none of us are perfect. We've all heard that there isn't a perfect church because there's people in it, right? But the reality of life is that you can't just go shut yourself up as a hermit and live in the mountains for the next like 30 years until Jesus shows back. If you do that, you'll be like, well, I'm not going to sin against my brother because I'm up here. Uh, you're actually robbing the, the world of a beautiful testimony. You're robbing the world of what God's doing in your life. Um, so I say that you actually are living in sin probably. Um, <laughs> just saying, I'm just being real. God didn't design us to do this by ourselves. And Unfortunately for some of you, like this might be the best that we got. So we're going to make do with it. <laughs> Just kidding. We're family. We don't get to pick family, right? God picked us. God chose us. God called us out. 
But he designs us to do this together. We need one another. I love this. I love thinking about this. And I've used this example multiple times, but realistically, Darwin and I, when I first came here 10 years ago, we had nothing in common. He made fun of the shoes I wore. <laughs> Do you remember that? You did. <laughs> you know, I liked metal music, and I don't even know if Darwin likes music, but um, <laughs> I can honestly say I feel like Darwin is one of my closest friends now. And we really didn't have anything in common. That has changed a little bit. I wish I was half as cool as Darwin was. Um, but the reality of it is, <laughs> the reality of it is, the, the family of God is this beautiful, right? We, we, we sing songs like we sing today. And we, we understand at the, at the end of the book of Revelation that there are going to be people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue that are presented to Jesus as a bride. From every backdrop and every kind of... Uh, type of life that you can imagine, God's going to be presented with people that are different. And that's the cool thing about different people is they have attributes and they have skills that you don't have. And they have the ability to refine you into a better version of yourself uh, because they're not you. <laughs> Church would be really boring if we were all the same. Just saying, that'd be weird. You got to put up with the guy that likes punk rock music and has tattoos and might push things a little bit. Uh, but I'm thankful for those that balance me out as well and that refine me and are willing to bring correction because I'm far more willing to bring correction from somebody. Anyway, never mind. The important aspect of what we're getting at here in what the church is, before we can even come to the place of why actually attending church is important, it's the fact that the church is the body of believers that is uniquely beautiful and diverse. And it's made up of people from all different backgrounds and backdrops of life. And that's encouraging. That's exciting. Because God isn't just concerned about one type of people. He desires that none should perish. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.